0: Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org.
1: Ready? Yeah. All right. Why don't we get started? Um, I'm John Haig. I'm the co-director of the most of our Romani Center for Business and Government. Thank you all for coming. Um, we are extremely fortunate today um, to have Nancy Rose with us. Uh, personally, I'm very excited about it because of my background of being at at for a number of years, um, and I would routinely have to deal with people like Nancy at the Department of Justice. Um, she's been at the Department of Justice, so she has practitioner's view, but more importantly, she brings a kind of very strong, rigorous economics perspective. She is the chair of the uh, economics department at MIT, um, and she is the Charles P. Kindleberger professor of applied economics at MIT. Um, So, um, she has, as I said, she was deputy assistant attorney general for economic analysis in the antitrust division, uh, and she she received her PhD in economics from MIT, but we won't hold that against her. <laughs> um, but the good news is she did get an AB in economics and government from Harvard. So we, we forgive her for her for her at yeah, MIT. Um, she is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and I could go on for a while, but I probably won't. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I think that the, the notion of antitrust particularly in a world with rapid technological change is an interesting one, and I know she's got some examples that she can talk through that will help us understand better. I'm looking forward to learning. Thanks, John.
0: So So I have to thank Joe Aldi for inviting me to come and give this talk. I'm really excited about it. Um, You have to worry if the fact that Joe Aldi wrote me on Monday and said he wasn't coming meant he had ex-post regrets about that, but you'll figure that out as we go. Um, So I have, uh, as John mentioned, um, I straddle two worlds. Uh, I've uh, been a a practicing academic economist um, for uh, my entire adult life, um, but I had a fabulous 28 months in the antitrust division uh, at the U.S. Department of Justice um, during the uh, last couple of years of the Obama administration. And so what I'm going to do today is... um, Uh, as I think befits the Kennedy School, try to straddle those two worlds in this discussion. Um, And just because I know I always uh, start um, uh, talking much more than I plan to, I'm gonna tell you what my objectives are up front and maybe um, disappoint those of you who came thinking I was gonna lay out the specific set of roadmaps for reinvigorating competition policy. But here are my objectives. So first, I want to briefly assess the evidence on declining competition, and honestly to uh, to express a considerable degree of skepticism about much of that. Why the skepticism, or why bother talking about it if I'm skeptical? Um, And that's because of the um, academic background that I've got, uh, but also an appreciation for the role that academic work has played In regulatory policy, which has been my my long-time area of interest as an academic, um, building a house or building a policy on sand tends to lead to bad outcomes, uh, especially because people who have interests that are opposed to, say, invigorating competition policy, if you base it on arguments that can be disproven or discredited, Um, we'll use that to torpedo your proposal, as well as the justification. And so I think it's important we understand sort of what we know and what we don't know before we take the next step. Then the second piece that I'd like to, the second objective I have is to describe to you a bit of how economics is actually used in the day-to-day practice in antitrust enforcement in the U.S. Very similar in Europe. Uh, I had a lot of uh, interactions with the European Commission on uh, cross-border mergers. Um, but, uh, but I wanna, and I'm gonna focus on mergers because that's how I spent 90% plus of my time at DOJ, given what's been going on in the merger space for the last many years. So I'm gonna talk about how economics is used in merger evaluation, investigations, and, uh, and potentially challenges. Uh, and, and in the context of that, I hope to lay out some opportunities for where we can improve. Um, and some challenges that we face if we want to reinvigorate competition policy. And then at the end, I'm going to sketch very briefly and dissatisfyingly, and I'm telling you this now so I can't just say, well, it's because i run out of time, I'll just fly through these last three slides, Um, but I want to sketch some directions for change, Um, changes that can be made at the level of the enforcement agencies. When I say enforcement agencies, I mean the Department of Justice Antitrust Division and the Federal Trade Commission, which for those of you who aren't steeped in the arcane uh, structure of the US government, share responsibility for competition policy in the US. Um, so things that they could do, uh, things that might require legislative action, which I know is a fairly daunting prospect uh, in the current environment, but, but there's a little bit of uh, perhaps bipartisan um, willingness to at least discuss competition policy uh, and then uh, finally and from my back in academia perspective very importantly, uh, a set of academic research um, targets that I think are needed to buttress the outcomes that uh, that we need for these for these reforms. So with that in mind, um, I mentioned that I start from a regulatory background. I'm an economist because of deregulation and because of Uh, Joe Kalt, who was a professor at that point in the Harvard Economics Department and taught an undergraduate course on regulatory economics at the height of deregulation in the late 1970s. And uh, uh, Dick Caves, who was in the Harvard Economics Department um, a long time before that kind of pulled me into industrial organization. I was a, a government major at Harvard at that point. And, uh, and I fell in love with economics and the end of my junior year switched to an economics major, which made the senior year, um, if you like economics, very intense on that front um, to finish that major. Why do I mention this? Well, in part because I'm, I'm in the middle of a center that thinks about regulation because academics had an incredibly important role to play in the deregulatory movement and the regulatory restructuring movement. Um, there was a massive policy shift in the 1970s uh, uh, into the 1990s and so forth. Um, and academics like Paul Joskow, my colleague and uh, uh, an audience member who took the subway down as I did from MIT, um, played a really important role in um, uh, pushing the, in doing the underlying academic work that gave policymakers and policy entrepreneurs the tools they needed. Uh, to advance arguments for deregulation, and then uh, worked with regulators um, and firms to think about how to restructure regulation as we move forward. Um, uh, And I think one of the great tragedies is that there are very few PhD programs today that still teach regulatory economics, and I think part of the quality of debate that we have over regulatory policy is in no small part due to that, that we have very few economists who are trained in what we've learned, and I think we risk reinventing the wheel. But I'm not going to talk about regulation today because I think the current hot policy topic that also could involve industrial organization economists, although we are late to this game, is the question of whether America has a competition problem. And I'm going to focus on America, but I will say depending on what statistics you look at, this appears to be a much broader phenomenon than just the U.S. Um, So lots of stories in the press, um, uh, work in think tanks, work here going on, uh, work in in policy realms worrying about the competition problem. This debate, which uh, I would say really took off more being led by Outlets like the Economist, uh, the New York Times, the FT, and others cite statistics like this to show that there is growing concentration. These are the top four firms' share of total industry revenue um, in 1997. This is their share in the latest, which was 2012, I think, when they did this, across roughly 900 industries. Um, The size of the bubble is the size of the industry, and... Um, bubbles that are above the curve have increased in the top four firm share. Now this is kind of interesting because in an industrial organization, these are called four firm concentration ratios. Like We haven't looked in academics at four firm concentration ratios, probably since I was a student at Harvard, which was a very long time ago. This came out uh, Sunday um, in the New York Times editorial, um, reporting on data that were collected by the Open Markets Institute and put up on their website. These are the uh, combined market shares of the two largest companies. One of the things that's nice about this is they've tried to to narrow some of the market definitions. Um, I'll say in a moment sort of what the problems are that we we have with looking at these aggregate statistics. Um, But the orange arrows are arrows that are telling you that between the early 2000s and today, the top two firms in these sectors have increased their share, and this Think line that you see going up and down the middle is the 50% share. So, in some of these industries, um, like say tobacco or hardware stores, we're seeing the t- top two firms with something like 80% of the market share, and a number of <coughs> things there they're a half. Um, it's not just the press that's picked up on it. Think tanks are worrying about it. The Hamilton Project at Brookings, that Jason Furman's involved with, has published reports on competition showing things like this. Now, these are HHIs. HHIs are another measure of concentration. They basically square the market, the revenue share of each firm and add them up. Um, and because HHIs have been appropriated by lawyers for use in antitrust analysis, we don't use a share between zero and one. We use a share between a zero and a hundred. That way you don't have to worry about decimal places. So these go between zero. For a completely atomistic industry, to 10000 would be a monopoly. One firm has a 100% share. Um, and in these broad settings, um, uh, HHI seem to have drifted up. Now we'll talk in a minute about whether retail is appropriately thought of as a market or um, not. I mentioned the Open Markets Institute report, and on their website, you can click through to a number of, of particular products that they've data from. So is an example um, where they're looking at... Uh, the 2017 revenue share, and three firms, um, Anheuser-Busch InBev, Miller Coors, and Constellation account for um, most of the the bulk of the sales in the U.S., with about a quarter being divided by uh, among a a number of other firms, many of which include the roughly 3,000 or 3,500 craft breweries, but with very tiny shares, so lots of firms, but a little market share. Um, Academics have also... um, Weighed in on this, interestingly, not so much from the industrial organization side. So my colleagues, uh, David Otter and John Van Riemann, have a paper on superstar firms that looks at rising concentration in the U.S. across various sectors. So here they're back to these four-firm or 20-firm concentration ratios, say, across what are called four-digit SIC code industries or NAICS code industries in manufacturing. Here's the same thing in, uh, in retail sales. Um, I would note that uh, one should always look at the scale of graphs. I'm telling undergraduate students that. And one thing that's interesting is that if the top four firms, you can suppose we look at manufacturing and were are up to 40%. If the top four firms have a share of 40%, <laughs> That's telling you there are probably a lot of competitors in that market, right? Because the next firm um, can't have more than 10% or it would have made it into the, the top four um, And so, um, on average. And so uh, there's a lot of kind of smaller firms out there competing and, and trying to become maybe one of the top four. So all of this has been happening against the context of a dramatic wave of merger activity in the U.S. This graph is, um, taken, is showing uh, in the bars the number of mergers um, from 1985 uh, to uh, 2017. The um, orange line, which is scaled on the uh, right side, uh, on your right side, is the value of those mergers. You know That is scaled between zero and three trillion dollars of activity in a given year, so we're talking about a lot of value changing hands. Um, the number of mergers, you know, in recent years has been climbing above um, 12 or 15,000 mergers. So that's a lot of activity that those two agencies in the U.S., the FTC and the Department of Justice, the Antitrust Division, have to somehow get their uh, heads around and figure out, are these okay, are these problematic, um, uh, what do we think of them, And against that, remember those were 10, like 15,000 mergers, right? Here's the number of second requests. What's a second request? Well, if you're proposing a merger and the transaction value of that merger is above roughly 75 million today, it passes what's called a Hart-Scott-Rodino filing notification level. So you have to tell the the FTC and the DOJ, that you're planning to acquire this other firm if your merger's above that. You don't have to tell them if it's below that, they could still challenge it, but it's with 15, 17,000 mergers, it might be hard for them to, to um, notice that you're proposing a smaller merger. say more about that in just a second. Um, if the merger seems to file some documentation with that, they're called the 4C documents for the section of the law, uh, that describes what you do, what the firm you're acquiring does, who your your main competitors are, who your main customers are, some contact information, um, what your products are across the two. And the agencies are looking at that to say, does it look like there's competitive overlap or not? And if it looks like there might be some, then they would open a preliminary investigation. And they do a little bit more digging, and they have 30 days to decide, is this merger sufficiently problematic or potentially problematic, that we want to do a deeper dive. And this deeper dive is what's called the second request. This used to be described as the, you know, give me every competitive, every document in your company that relates to competition, pricing, products, everything. And, and in the days when those were paper, sometimes you had, for really big transactions, literally tractor trailers showing up with documents. Now it's all done by exchange of hard drives, but lots and lots of information. So these are very intrusive to the companies that are involved, they're very expensive. They're very intrusive for the agencies because the agencies have to put a lot of economists and lawyers on a team to analyze all that information. So there aren't a lot of them. In fact, you know, over this time period from 2005 to 2015, right, the peak is, is hitting 30, but in most years um, it's somewhere between 15 and 30. Right, so that's not a lot of investigations. Now that could be because nobody proposes a problematic merger. That's possible, right? The antitrust system's a deterrent system. If you know, if you propose a problematic merger, you're gonna get slapped with a very expensive investigation and at the end of which there may be a challenge, Um, then maybe you don't propose that merger. So that's one theory. But another concern would be that there's just not a lot of transactions that are being investigated and and of these second requests, a fair number of them, a fairly high fraction, are challenged. But most of those challenges are settled the same day that they're, that they're challenged. So the, the, say if, uh, I'll talk about this from the standpoint of the anti-trust division. I will slip and say we. Oui. I have not been out long enough yet to transfer my complete allegiance back to MIT. Uh, so sometimes I'll say we oui and I mean DOJ. Um, uh, so if an investigation is going along and looking problematic, the agencies in interaction with the parties to the merger on a fairly high frequency basis during one of these second requests. And they'll ex- be, ex- the staff will express their concerns. The leadership will, will say, we think this is troubling. And companies may, may either propose a remedy, so they may say, look, you, you know, you think most of this merger is okay, but so to take an FTC example, you're worried about the overlap in our retail gasoline stations in half a dozen cities we'll sell off one of the company's retail gasoline stations in those six cities to a competitor and that way there's no effect on competition in the six cities you're worried about. And and then the FTC might say, okay, that resolves our concern, we'll let the merger go through. Um, Another thing that might happen is if the concerns are uh, not really remediable and the companies get the sense that they could be involved in a very long and costly court battle over this, they might decide to abandon. Or they might decide to say, as many companies did during my time in, in the division, we'll see you in court. Um, I mentioned something about this Scott rodino filing uh, and that that only applies to mergers over, at this point, it's indexed to inflation, roughly $75 <coughs> million. Um, there's some work by Thomas Woolman that suggests that uh, uh, when the, um, when the new, Scott-Rodino notification threshold was put in, it was put in at $50 billion in 2001, um, that the number of small mergers around that threshold didn't change a lot, but the number of DOJ and FTC, I think these are just DOJ figures, um, investigations um, dropped to almost zero, Um, and so he's got an interesting paper that suggests that maybe companies are um, increasing their their activity in these kind of smaller mergers that escape the notice um, of the agencies. Now, there have been a couple of um, one successful litigated challenge to a consummated merger, so one that had take, not required to be notified, taken place, um, was anti-competitive, and DOJ forced the companies to unwind it. That was... Um, Bizarre Voice and Power Reviews, the guys that power the rankings um, inside your, the websites that you go to. Um, and there have been a couple of DOJ actions that have required significant divestitures when they discovered after the fact that a merger had taken place and the companies hadn't fully disclosed their competitive overlap. So you, the, the agencies can undo a consummated merger. That's even more expensive for the companies, but you know, maybe some suggestion that, uh, that that's becoming so, against all of this backdrop of concern about rising concentration, the large number of mergers, the few number of agency investigations and challenges, um, competition policy, antitrust policy has become the um, the whipping boy for the problems that we face in America, and reforms to that have been argued to be the solution to many of our problems ranging from Declining labor share to rising inequality. Question. Oh, uh, and um, uh, and so my question that I'd like to spend a little time on now is: Is competition policy to blame? So this is from the 1890s when the Sherman Antitrust Act, the core stat- antitrust statute in the U.S., was um, uh, was passed. Um, But maybe the 1890s aren't as far away as we thought, and we're seeing more and more um, uh, people arguing that we're back to a kind of gilded age style monopoly, and we need to to go back to the trust-busting Teddy Roosevelt days that we left behind. So what should we make of this? Um, I would like to argue to you that I think the evidence is less informative than we'd like it to be. Um, First, I mentioned that you'd like to look at the scale on the left-hand side of the graph, and in a lot of industries where we're seeing rising concentration measured by HHI's or or four-firm concentration ratios, the numbers are so small that I don't really think we'd find a lack of competition for consumers' business. That is, consumers would have a lot of choices in most of those markets were the concentration levels really at that level. But a bigger problem is that the way these concentration measures have been constructed, I think they're largely uninformative. It doesn't mean they're too high, they could be too low, they could be too high in some cases and too low in others, and that's my biggest concern about these is that they just don't tell us a lot. Um, So first, what are called industries may not be product markets, so in some papers, they work with either three-digit or four-digit industries. So take an industry like food manufacturing. Kind of sounds like a market. But if you think, okay, what's inside food manufacturing? You know, it's everything from dog and cat food manufacturing to animal slaughtering to spice extracts to fluid milk. Like a company, you know, Hershey's, that's in chocolate and confectionery manufacturing, is unlikely to be competing with Tyson's that's, that's slaughtering chickens, right? And so I don't know that we'd worry a lot about if those two companies were combining their sales um, there's a reduction in competition faced by, um, by consumers. So they're likely neither substitutes on the consumption side. If I'm needing my late afternoon pickup and looking for a Hershey bar, I'm unlikely to be saying, well, if we're out of Hershey bars I'm happy to take a raw shrimp Um, They're also unlikely to be (laughs) substitutes on the production side. But geography also matters for a lot of markets. In some markets, the market is nationwide. So we're competing, say, in cellular communication. Maybe most consumers want a nationwide carrier that's got service kind of broadly throughout the US, and we're thinking then about the big four that are um, proposing to become the big three. and that might be the appropriate level of geography. But in others, if we're thinking about um, what choices do I have for a drugstore in Harvard Square, it doesn't really matter to me what drugstore exists in Manhattan, right? I care about what I can get to in Harvard Square, and so local geography matters a lot. And there's an interesting new paper uh, by Rossi Hamburg and other, Hansberg and others that takes across countries and looks at the change in (coughs) national levels of HHI from 1990 to 2014, and then looks within zip code, and interestingly, what that paper finds is the national levels across most sectors are rising, but the local levels are falling. So why might that happen? Well, it could happen, for instance, If we've got chains, if we think of, go back to that retail example, we have fewer chains. So nationally, the top chains have a larger market share, but the chains are more likely to enter each other's markets, and so now instead of having one or two drugstores in a market, maybe we have three, right? So the local concentration's gone down. Um, And I think, in fact, this conclusion that what the evidence on concentration is telling us is more about the size of the largest firms, and that is that big firms have gotten bigger, um, than uh, it's telling us about competition. Understanding whether that hunch is true, and if it is true, what's driving it is super important. It's important because if the reason the big firms are getting bigger is because they've invested a lot to become more efficient or their economies of scale, then we sacrifice (coughs) costs, we're going to raise costs to customers if we somehow impede firms being able to grow. Um, If it's because the winners, the largest (coughs) firms, are offering products that are more compelling, more attractive, more valuable to consumers, it seems a little problematic to say we don't want that to happen. We want to somehow stop those firms from being able to innovate in the product side. Um, But if it's because of mergers or anti-competitive conduct, Um, we probably ought to be doing something about it. And so I think at the first level, um, when we ask about the facts, has concentration in markets increased? We don't really know, yet. Are markets less competitive? Even if there's more concentration, does that mean less competitive? We can't really tell. We're making a little progress, but it's still, I would say, an open question. Um, now we can step back and say, well, what motivates the mergers? We, we saw that, you know, 15,000, 17,000 mergers a year. What's going on there? Um, there's a kind of an old literature on that, and I think it's time for economists to go back and revisit it. Um, we could then say, well, maybe we don't care what the motivation is. Let's just look at effects. Well, we do. We have looked at that as, an, as a field and industrial organization. Um, unfortunately, that's not incredibly compelling either. Um, The best work on this to look at merger retrospectives has been summarized by John Kulka in a 2015 book. He finds first and foremost that most of the mergers that have been studied resulted in competitive harm, usually in the the form of higher prices, but sometimes uh, in the form of worse non-price outcomes. He's done a more recent paper that's, um, that's looked at antitrust enforcement specifically, and one of the things that he argues is that the agencies have, over time, shifted their threshold for what they pay attention to. So, um, So in the 60s and 70s, the agencies probably would have blocked mergers that took eight competitors down to seven or seven competitors down to six. And what Foca found in looking at FCC statistics, the DOJ doesn't break it down this way, um, is that uh, you only see um, enforcement actions against more than half of the proposed mergers that are investigated um, when, you're, when you're going from five to four. And most of the action seems to be in, two to, in three to twos and two to ones, so where you're taking a triopoly down to a duopoly or a duopoly to a monopoly. It's kind of amazing since the the merger law in the US says that you can't merge if the effect is maybe to substantially lessen competition, that firms would propose to merge to monopoly. I was quite shocked when one month into my term at DOJ, we had a merger to monopoly, and when, when I said it's a merger to monopoly, like, don't they know they're gonna get challenged? There were all of these reasons for, of course, this is not your typical merger to, that's not really a monopoly. Um, don't worry about it. But it does, it, it still does show up. So maybe that deterrent system isn't working quite as well as we thought it was. The problem with Quoca's work and other work based on merger retrospectives is that while John looked at as much of the academic literature as he could find that looked at ex-post merger reviews, there just wasn't a lot of it. And he's looking over a very long time period. So if you take out gasoline stations airlines, and hospitals, um, and banking, I guess, is the, other, is the other one. You know, you're left with academic journals, three studies of pharma, and eight studies in other sectors. And so we're really in the lights, you know, searching for the keys under not just the lamppost, but under a very focused spotlight that doesn't shine very far away from the lamppost. Um, <coughs> So what I want to do in the next few minutes is, and I'm going to, at this point, you're all so silent. If you've got questions, ask, because I'm pretty confident given the time. I will not finish with lots of time for Q&A at the end, so take advantage and interrupt. What I want to do is say, if I don't think that these aggregate statistics are telling us that much about the state of competition or whether merger policy has been... Um, too lax or too tight or Goldilocks right in the middle perfect. Um, I'd like to give you some insights from my experience at DOJ that convinces me that we uh, can and should be more vigorous in our antitrust enforcement. Um, And to do that, I want to spend a little bit of time telling you about what the role of economic analysis is in merger investigations and challenges to think about where, it, give you some examples of where I think economists have advanced the ball in merger enforcement, so I've made real contributions and, and progress in making it more um, vigorous, um, but to identify some of the challenges to moving um, further in that direction or even just continuing on the path that we may have started on. Uh, and then, as I said at the end, I'll come up with a few ideas of what more I think we need to do. Um, so the, the first thing I want to say is when I... Um, talk to colleagues who have just been in academia, some industrial organization economists um, who've spent their careers in academia, um, even some who've done a little bit of consulting in uh, merger investigations, either for the parties or for the, the agencies. Um, what comes to mind is this, well, you collect the data, You estimate a structural model of of supply and demand and you do a merger simulation. What would happen if we let these two firms that are now independent um, coordinate their activities? Um, I will say there was some of that when I was at DOJ, but not as much as my uh, academic um, peers um, assume there is. Um, so how does an actual investigation <coughs> tend, to, tend to get going? Um, the first thing to know, and this is a, a, you know, kudos for the role of economics in merger enforcement, to open an investigation at the DOJ requires one economist and one lawyer. So you put a proposal in to open a preliminary investigation, you give the reason for why you think this merger that's just come through the door is potentially problematic, um, and you have to get both a lawyer and economist to sign off on that. Um, the economist has the responsibility for articulating the theory of competitive harm. Um, so, learning enough about the market, if it's not one they've already worked in, to be able to say if this merger were problematic, here's how that would probably be manifest. Right. So maybe it's just a plain vanilla. Um, these are the only. Uh, these are the only two. Broad pre-show theater advertising company. So that was the merger to monopoly. It wasn't quite a monopoly. There was an art house um, uh, advertising <laughs> agency. These are the two companies that produce the pre. The, all of those ads you see when you walk into a movie theater too early, like when it's <coughs> starting. Uh, and if they merge, it'll be a monopoly, and they'll raise price. Right. So that uh, advertisers say. Um, so. Um, or they'll, ta- they'll take more of the ad commission from theaters if that's the way it's priced. So that would be a theory of harm. Um, it's grounded in market facts and institutions, and that's where people are kind of learning quickly if it's a new industry about that industry in those first 30 days. Um, they'll be collecting evidence for and against the theory. Right? So the, the objective of an antitrust enforcer is truth. It's an awesome job to have. right? If you're on the outside you've got a client you're working for. In the antitrust division, your client is the US public. Um, very cool, very highly motivating to staff. Um, so they're, they're looking not just is this theory true, we're not trying to prove it's true, we're trying to see is it true or false. And if the evidence says the theory's false, great. We get to sort of suggest we close the investigation and move on to the next one. Um, that's done through the collection of data sometimes. Um, particularly to get into one of those second requests they'll be able to data, but the companies might give you some information to start with that. There's a lot of analysis of company documents. How do they talk about the business? How do other firms in the industry talk about the business? Um, there's interviews of customers, of competitors, of other people who might be, say, intermediaries in the market. Um, and you spend a lot of time uh, listening to the merging parties because they all come in with their Um, attorneys and their economists and explain to you how this market works and why this merger isn't really a problem. If it had been, of course, they would never have proposed it. So you're going to try to learn the information. Uh, You're going to try to learn what the facts are for against the theory. If the theory and facts suggest that there's likely harm to competition, there's an attempt to measure impact. That's where these merger sims might come in, but often you don't have the data or the data in a form that let you do some complicated econometric analysis that if you were a PhD student, would take you three years to, to do and you know six more years to publish. Um, you've got a clock running. Uh, the antitrust division, I think, has now just ratcheted down that clock for those second requests to, to six months. Um, so you've gotta to come to, to not just a conclusion about the theory, but a measurement of its impact in a pretty short space of time. Uh, and you have to recognize that if you're going to at the end of this say this merger is problematic and should be challenged, that blocking a merger requires evidence sufficient not to convince the assistant attorney general in the antitrust division or the five commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission that it's problematic. That's step one. You have to have evidence that it's going to convince a court of the likely harm to competition. And I'll say more about that at the end. Now, yes.
1: I just have a question. When you say harm to competition, is that only harm to consumers or harm to workers?
0: Mm. Harm to competition. Great question. So sometimes in antitrust we say we have a consumer welfare standard. I prefer to call it a trading partner standard. The law specifies that the, that the mergers may, the effect of the merger may be substantially less in competition, and we can think about that as if the firms are selling downstream to the consumers, the customers that they sell to, or we can think about it upstream as harm to that. Uh, you get more uh, power leverage as buyers, and you harm the people that you're purchasing inputs from, whether that's a firm or employees. Um, so I've got a paper with Scott Hemphill in the May uh, 2018 New York, uh, sorry, Yale Law, uh, Yale Law Journal that talks about these mergers that harm buyers. That was one of the challenges, or one of the, the charges alleged in the Anthem-Cigna health insurance merger was an upstream harm. The DOJ's also got a number of settled uh, cases where they complained in, about a reduction in competition upstream, say, with respect to farmers in agricultural settings, with respect to nurses or other hospital employees in, um, in uh, insurance markets. <coughs> yeah?
1: Um, you, when you stay in Competitions? You mean like any level of harm, or um, because in the real world you don't have like a perfect competition or perfect monopoly anyway. So it's going to be like workable competition level, right? And then the how do you accommodate the dynamic efficiency when like merger firms gonna say like oh we have this kind of R and D something
0: like. That. Yeah, so I'll talk about the the innovation stuff maybe in a couple minutes. Um, excellent, excellent sets of questions. Um, The agency typically is thinking about the current status quo as the baseline, and so the question is, is it getting worse than it is today? Now, you know, if you look at kind of standard differentiated product models in industrial organization, like any merger of two of those products is going to raise prices. So in practice, there's prosecutorial discretion if, if the agency thought You know, yes, of course, always if you're merging two firms that somehow (coughs) compete even if it's only a little bit, even if they're not very close substitutes but they're a bit, that the ex post price might go up. But you know, there may be efficiencies, there may be, entry may not be difficult. If we think that the effect is an epsilon price increase, a tiny little price increase, we're probably not going to spend the resources <coughs> to enforce against it. In part, again, to go because we have to go back and convince a court that this is problematic. Um, that doesn't mean there's a number.
1: So, so you should use a uh, challenge, horizontal merger, right? Um, what about vertical mergers?
0: Yeah. Well, can I hold that, and we'll maybe talk a tiny bit about AT and Time Warner. Mm-hmm. I will just say the the AT and T. Apologies, AT&T press on that was magnificent PR and almost, all right, I'll back up, and much of it just alternative facts. (laughs) Um, So, in fact, there were a a number of uh, vertical mergers that were um, challenged by the DOJ during preceding my time there and while I was there. Um, They didn't go to litigation, so that part is true either because they were abandoned or because they were settled. Um, yeah, we'll talk about, we'll talk about that. Um, so the nice thing is that there is this...
1: this yeah? With respect to the, the entry of courts, what share of the time do they affirm? What share of the time
0: oh, do they... good question. The um, it depends a lot. Uh, so. So the... The DOJ during kind of the Obama administration um, won most of its cases. Um, so um, Oracle PeopleSoft was a uh, horrible <coughs> loss and, and the same thing, I'm gonna say something now. the same thing was true in the FTC in the hospital setting. I think that caused the division to pull back and not challenge for a while to sort of figure out, okay, <coughs> we need to do something different. What you're worried about when you challenge a a merger and lose is not so much that you lose, although nobody likes to lose, but you worry about bad case law being set as a precedent that makes it more difficult to challenge similar mergers in the future. Um, And that's really important. I think economists tend to underappreciate that. Lawyers much more so appreciate that. Um, So like the American Express Supreme Court decision, I think, terrible, horrible precedent. I think if, the, if anybody had had a sense that it was going to come out that way, you know, probably the division wouldn't have appealed the appellate court decision.
1: Yeah. Um, so one, just a comment and then a question. The, you know, having been on the other side of this, you generally are having conversations well before you announce, mm-hmm. and so you're typically getting a feel for whether you think you're going to win And so a lot of these, I I suspect your data that you're looking for... um, That's the
0: deterrent system, right? Right. Exactly.
1: you're not going to bring it forward if you think you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, And you spend a lot of time and a lot of money on lawyers helping you... Figure that out. And it is really
0: interesting. There are some attorneys who I think are maybe hungrier for business, and so there's some shopping, and there were definitely, I think, some mergers we saw where they had been told by perhaps some... Uh, defense attorneys, you're not going to get that past DOJ. And they shopped until they found somebody that said, oh, yeah, we can do it, and then often didn't. But, yeah. A
1: specific example I know an AT&T example where a lot of advice was saying you could get through a merger actually in the wireless arena. And they didn't. And the internal dynamics are such that you're not going to run that risk because the person who is the general counsel. Lost his job because he thought he could get it through, and he didn't. And that was at the end of his career in 1880. I mean, so you, there's a whole
0: complicated Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, when I said it's a deterrent system, and we're not, you know, the, do the small numbers tell us we're not really deterring much or the mergers to monopoly? I do think we deter a lot of the worst mergers because, you know, firms are very sensitive to figuring out where is that line. And the line, the bar can sometimes fluctuate with, say, administrations. But they're trying to figure out where that bar is and not propose mergers that are, you know, way way over the the bar for challenging them say.
1: You're at the margin basically. Yeah. The question I guess yeah. is how do you deal with potential mergers that traditional economists would say are natural monopolies? And so you may not want to bring an enforcement, but you may want remedies Regulations to manage the natural monopoly. Maybe those don't exist in this day and age. But
0: uh, I, I think in the tech sector that that nexus is becoming a very right. important area of policy debate. Um, in the in the agency space, they worry a bit about: is there a sector regulator that either has authority or at least you're supposed to consult? And those vary a lot, right? So, like the. Um, surface transportation board in the railroad had responsibility for railroad mergers DOJ got consulted but it didn't get to decide and and the STB let railroads merge up the gazoo Um, they seem to maybe now be thinking now that we're down to kind of two east and two west maybe we're done but uh, but there are still railroad mergers being proposed Um, DOT had that role in airlines for a while now they they are consulted but they are not dispositive uh, and of course, the Federal Communications Commission has that role. I don't, um, so this, the issue of regulation came up, uh, actually in, I'm gonna talk about Etna mana. So let's let's go to that, because that was the, one of the company's defenses, was this is already, it was a natural monopoly, but it was like, there's a regulator who will take care of this. And I will say, the, the antitrust agencies are pretty skeptical of that. They, they think competition is better um, if you have a regulator, that's great. But regulators tend to prefer comp- should prefer competition as well. Markets prefer competition. So, so what I want to do is is to use mergers to three mergers that I worked on. Uh, and I'll say something. I didn't work on the CT Time Warner, um, but given the press about that, it seems interesting. Uh, to talk about how economics is used in mergers. So I call Aetna Humana, which uh, two big insurance companies that were merging. The the market of concern for the DOJ narrowed into Medicare Advantage markets, which are policies sold to senior citizens, alternative, kind of like HMOs, alternatives to Medicare uh, in 364 counties and a handful of health insurance exchange, ACA, um, individual policies. Um, It sold in, uh, I think it was 17 counties at the end. uh, this, this looked a lot like what I.O. economists think of as a merger analysis. So where, where there's demand estimation, we estimate a nested logit model of demand, we can simulate the merger, we can do retrospectives, we sort of have a lot of rich data that's readily accessible, and the division has uh, experience in insurance mergers and Medicare Advantage, so they have a little bit of an apparatus geared up. The FTC and hospitals would be an example of this. So the FTC has a machinery that they crank when a hospital merger comes in because they do so many of them. So they've taken the time to sort of refine the model, have the data available, and can crank this out pretty quickly. The second one I want to talk about is applying uh, new models, new theories of harm. What I mean by new is ones that maybe haven't appeared in merger challenges before, and relatively simple empirics. And I'll talk very briefly about bargaining leverage theories in the Comcast-Time Warner cable merger, um, not to be confused with Time Warner um, Content (coughs) in the AT&T vertical merger. Bargaining theory played a very important role in the AT&T-Time Warner. uh, it's not the first time that, that bargaining leverage has been used as a theory of harm in litigation. It gets used a lot in the FTC's hospital mergers. That is their model is a model of um, bargaining leverage with insurers, uh, or bargaining with insurers. Um, but I think this illustrates nicely the difficulty of getting courts to understand um, even something that is well understood in economics. Um, and then the third one I want to mention is one of these Well, okay, how could you estimate that harm, right? And there I want to talk about innovation effects. And I'll talk about it in the context of something you've never heard of. This was um, a merger of the two most uh, leading edge semiconductor equipment manufacturers. So these are people who build the equipment that Intel uses to produce the next generation of chips. Uh, And the division was very concerned about innovation. Um, we could talk about it in the context of Dow DuPont or Bayer Monsanto where innovation played a very significant role. Um, uh, my understanding is although I wasn't, I was a little bit involved in Dow DuPont uh, when I was at the division, not in Bayer Monsanto, I'm not going to talk about that because it's always hard for me to know what I can talk about when, on something that I worked on at the division. So easier to talk about one that was abandoned and we're over. Uh, so Edna Human, as I said, was this kind of ideal. Uh, we uh, uh, the division, on the same day, filed two challenges: one to Anthony, <coughs> they are the, the markets of concern were commercial insurance markets sold to employers, um, and at Humana, they are the market of concern was Medicare Advantage. Um, so I told you that the the um, the division is looking at, uh, or the agencies, both of them, are looking at documents, at data, at testimony. <coughs> And you can think of those as three (coughs) legs to a stool, and you want all of them to be telling the same story. That's what's going to sort of um, both give you confidence that your story is right and give you confidence that you might be able to convince a judge. So a document like this, which came out of a Humana slide deck, which said, how do customers decide uh, whether to buy Medicare Advantage? What's their decision tree? Well, they think about brands, typically two to three, then they say, am I willing to accept network restrictions? And if the answer is yes, I'm going to think about Medicare Advantage plans, and I'm going to look at various plans in the Medicare Advantage space. And if the answer is no, then I'm going to be a Medicare patient, and maybe I want a supplemental Medicare insurance policy because that, that Medicare doesn't cover a lot of expenses. Um, well, this sure looks like what we teach our, our students is a nested logit model, Right? You're on one tree, one side of the tree or the other. You're thinking about, as you're making this decision, you know, what are the options like on the other one? But what this is telling you is the products down here, which could include Humana and Aetna products, are much closer substitutes to each other than they are to products over here. And you can estimate the, what's called the nesting parameter, the degree of substitution between the two nests. So perfect setup for structural demand estimation. The documents tell you the companies think of it this way, although they tried to walk back significantly from that. Um, uh, it gives you the structure uh, for the analysis, and it turns out there's lots of academic work that's done this in academic papers published in referee journals as well. So it all kind of comes together. Um, and indeed, our expert um, estimated, who is uh, a Navo, who's at Penn, Uh, Now estimated the um, predicted increase in rebate-adjusted premiums from this merger in these affected counties. His estimate was they would go up 60%, so huge. When you talk about what's the threshold, we weren't close to a threshold here. This is enormous, right? And then what was beautiful about this, so the other side also has experts. They're telling me why the government's expert is full of it. Um, But it turned out that... uh, that John Orzag, who's an economic litigation consultant, brother to Peter, um, had put in um, a report for the parties. And in his appendix, he'd done a variety of robustness checks to show the court that, um, that these effects were not particularly um, small. But it turned out if you used his estimates of this nesting parameter um, through the robustness checks, Um, that you would come up with estimates that ranged from 10%, which was kind of what he was estimating within some noise factor up to 74%, and DOJ's is kind of right in the middle, um, which I think the judge found um, quite comforting. Interestingly, usually if you read, if you get all the way through litigation and the judge issues an opinion, the economic part of the opinion is often the government expert said this, the defense expert said that, how am I, a district court judge who hasn't taken economics ever or maybe I took F10, you know, 40 years ago when I was an undergraduate, how am I to decide that? I don't know, but the documents look really bad, right? In this case, this was the first time that, that certainly I could remember, but I asked all of the lawyers with much more experience, where there is a discussion of the nesting parameter in the district court judge's opinion. It's like. Victory for economics. (laughs) Um, Okay. In this case, um, if you wanted to know... So parties, I said, will tell you first there's no effect, and then they'll say, even if there were effects, there are going to be huge efficiencies from the merger. If we tried to raise prices, rivals would reposition their products and compete more aggressively and defeat any price increase, or they'll come into our market. Or, as I mentioned, their regulators, they said CMS has oversight of Medicare Advantage, they can they can say companies can't put price increases through, um, and then a kind of Hail Mary at the end was, you know, and if all of this doesn't satisfy you, Judge, well, we could have a divestiture of the counties that you're most worried about and, and remedy it all. Um, so I describe this as kind of throwing lots of little pieces of mylar in front of the Judge and hoping that the Judge will follow the drifting mylar instead of the the main focus of the agency's argument um, because the the burden of proof is on the agency. Um, And so there's, you know, but lots of other things could happen. What was nice about this is that there had been Medicare Advantage mergers before, uh, and so we could look at what happened in those. And and so again, the government presented evidence that said, um, you know, retrospectives suggest that uh, that the effect of past mergers was to increase price, that would have had all of, you know, all of these mitigating factors would have been at play there. They weren't sufficient to to produce no price effect, um, and so we wouldn't expect them to, to be sufficient in this case. Now, there's a lot of other evidence presented as well, but, but again, this sort of is the kind of intuitive, appealing evidence. Um, so that was... I call it easy, not, like, so much. It was several weeks of trial, and before that, several months of crazy, crazy preparation. Um, but in the end, uh, the judge blocked it with a discussion of the nesting parameters, um, but not instrumental variables. He decided he didn't have to get into the adjudicating the instrumental variables debate. That seemed a, a bridge too far. Um, they're not all like that, unfortunately. Um, okay. So the second one I wanted to just mention is this Comcast Time Warner Cable. I showed up at the division. This investigation was going on. It was huge. I remember driving uh, back and forth um, to visit my mom in Pennsylvania, and all these ads were coming on about uh, Comcast Time Warner Cable, Better Together. And I'm thinking, like, who are these ads directed to? And then I realized, oh, they want to hit me. Very expensive way to hit you know, probably 30 people in the Washington, D.C. area that were responsible for overseeing this merger. Um, But I think that was the target because I can't imagine why customers would care. Yes? So through the regulations.gov, you can just as a citizen submit a comment? Yes. Yes. Right, just to whatever agency is overseeing. Right.
1: Can you do that in this case to...
0: No, you you could. No, you... Well, I think you could reach out. I think you could. We don't get a lot of that. Um, especially just ordinary individuals, um, but, custom- but customers do. So, yeah, I would guess as a citizen, you could. There's, um, certainly, if you if you think the companies are colluding, that I know more about. If you think that there are two companies that are that are colluding to fix prices or divide markets or whatever, there's a hotline for that. You could. It's probably the same hotline. It would get to the antitrust division, and the FTC does take comments. Because they're, they're a regulatory agency, and uh, the DOJ's law enforcement. So it's not so much set up for that. But certainly in merger investigations, they're trying to figure out what okay, customers think.
1: in terms of the merger, like, you know, you have a company that's maybe like putting out
0: audience. An yeah. people are oh, a good thing. Yeah. No, no, and it could be that they were – it might not have been 30 people. Maybe they were hoping people would say to the FCC, which had also oversight, they have a public interest standard for mergers in the communication sphere. Maybe they were hoping people would say to the FCC, let this merger go through. Um, but I don't think those two companies were competing very much in the Washington area, which is why it was so puzzling. Um, anyway, so, well, uh, I shouldn't say not competing. We're present. Com- I think Comcast was, but not so much time. Okay. Um, so this was argued to create pro-consumer and pro-competitive benefits. And one of the things you can see... Uh, apologies if, if you're colorblind. I lifted this; I didn't create it. Um, the the red and blue dots are telling you um, Comcast areas in red and Time Warner Cable in blue. And you see, there's not much purple, and that's because for cable system for these two cable systems, there are essentially no households that could choose between a Comcast and a Time Warner Cable subscription, right? And that was the core of their argument: is we don't compete, so you know, just let us go. Don't even ask for a second request. Um, So this was something where the the Antitrust Division and the FCC had to think hard about what really is the market here. And while they don't compete for end use households, they do compete in the national distribution market for video programming and internet content. Um, And content providers have to negotiate terms, that's where the bargaining comes in, um, with distributors like Comcast and Time Warner Cable to reach end use customers and the merger would have significantly increased their share in the national distribution market. So both the FCC and the division um, did some um, pretty uh, basic empirical analysis of contracts um, and that suggested that scale conferred significant bargaining leverage and so an increase in scale would have increased bargaining leverage, enabling the merged company to extract better terms from uh, from uh, content providers, yeah?
1: So how do you think about what may be a redistribution of rents but not harm consumers versus they have more leverage and that generally um, increases their profit margin and, and damages? Yeah, so
0: this kind of goes back to this question about upstream harm. Right, exactly. And, and- so what was interesting is if you read the and so um, this merger was abandoned when the FCC and DOJ told the parties that they were inclined to challenge or they weren't convinced by the party's arguments. Um, Charter acquired Time Warner Cable a little bit later. Um, the SEC has a lot of written background on it in their order. Um, uh, DOJ in in. Both of those, uh, well, in Comcast, Time Warner Cable was thinking a lot about the um, internet access, the broadband market, because um, that was uh, an easier lift and not getting into this buy-side harm so much. Um, Whereas in video programming, where the cable companies were purchasing content as opposed to selling access, it's kind of this, you know sort of the same, but it's different sides of the market. I think it, this was a point where the lawyers were a little worried about how do we think about the buy side harm. Now, we got o- the division got over that in, 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 um, in Anthem Cigna. Um, but I, I, I would just go back to this trading partner welfare. I, I think it's a harm. I think the other way you could think about this, and, and this is very imprecise, but you could think about having a balloon and if the distributor in the middle is able to squeeze from both sides, right, the, balloon, the part of the balloon in the middle is going to get bigger, right? That's the rents going into the into the, distri- into the distributor. We don't know whether all of the air in the middle is coming from one side versus the other, or maybe we're squeezing the, the upstream side a lot and letting a little air leak over to the downstream customers. But what we know is that middle is getting bigger. <laughs> I just think that's self-evidently such a harm to competition that the law reaches it, and that's what Scott and I basically argue. So you don't need it, an it output. It does go
1: back to the harm question. Yeah, like ex- exactly, earlier, exactly, totally. You know, do you, what harms do you care about? Is competition in the end, or is it consumer welfare?
0: Yeah, and I, I guess I would say that's where this question that was asked, maybe by you on the dynamics, where you said dynamic right. comes back right. and boy, are we not good at modeling that, but I would say that that's where we, there's a, my background in regulatory economics suggests that those dynamic rent-seeking behavior, dissipation of rents through rent-seeking can be hugely costly. I would be very worried if we said, oh, we're only going to look at the end-use household and not worry about the rest in a partial equilibrium static sense and assume that doesn't ever trickle down to being bad for households. So I I don't have a problem with that, but it is, full disclosure, there's a lot of legal debate. I think it's misguided, but uh. anyway. um, So as I say, these bargaining models are at the core of many merger analyses. The FTC uses them in hospitals all the time. Uh, They're used in media mergers a lot. the DOJ used it in, uh, in, uh, in an insurance merger. Um, uh, they've got a kind of checkered history in the courts. So even now, I mentioned before, the FTC had had a, you know, DOJ kind of retreated for a bit to figure out how to deal with its loss in Oracle PeopleSoft. The FTC stopped litigating hospital mergers for a number of years after a series of losses and set to work to figure out how to, to make those cases stick in court. And they are now very good at it, but still not so much at the district court level. So there were a couple of hospital mergers in uh, probably uh, late 2016 where the district court judge refused to block the merger. The FTC appealed and the appellate court slammed, uh, my view, um, slammed the district court opinions. Um, Uh, but it suggests it's still hard to get judges to understand these bargaining models. And I think a great example of that is the AT&T Time Warner um, political merger. Um, I don't think this was the only problem, but but it's pretty clear from the opinion that the judge had uh, trouble grasping bargaining (coughs) leverage. I think the judge also either had trouble grasping or just refused to acknowledge joint profit maximization. It was like, well, the companies will internalize their, their joint profit maximizing outcome for eliminating double marginalization from this vertical merger, um, but they won't do it when it would increase the profits from their negotiation with the uh, video content provider, or with the um, uh, other distributors for content, of Time Warner uh, content, um, which seems kind of schizophrenic. Who knows what the appellate court will do, but Um, probably not. So somebody asked about vertical mergers. My guess is uh, this, this isn't especially bad precedent because the opinion's so both cabined into the particular facts of this case and gets those facts kind of wrong and so I don't think it's going to have a ton of precedential value. But I, I suspect the agencies will think hard about how to find a better vertical case to next litigate. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about innovation. I'm just going to say when you can't measure things, it gets even harder. Um, okay, so looking forward. Um, the key to this, to understanding antitrust enforcement, and one of the things that drives me a bit <laughs> crazy when I read popular discussions that slam the agencies, is that it's really difficult to challenge, to successfully challenge a merger. It's very costly in terms of resources. Um, It requires a lot of evidence, um, and it requires you to present that evidence in a way that convinces um, non-economist judges, most of whom have never seen an antitrust case before, (coughs) few of whom know basic economics, um, and you're trying to sort of bring them up to speed on this particular industry and setting and merger and theory of harm all at once. And the, and the judges are typically saying, stop taking so much time, I want this case off my docket, let's move it forward. Um, so in the AT&T Time Warner case, I think Carl Shapiro, who was the government's expert witness, had two and a half hours of time to explain basically the entire economics of the government's case. Um, wasn't, wasn't enough, but it's a really challenging uh, job. And that's because the judge didn't want to hear more. Um, uh, it's an adversarial process once you get to court where the government has the, the burden of proof, and complexity and fragility are, are big disadvantages. And then I think the other thing that's happened over time, and economists probably should shoulder most of the blame for this, is that as we've gotten better at estimating effects, we've kind of convinced courts... Um, or it's been easy for parties to convince courts, that if you can't quantify something to the fourth decimal point, it doesn't exist or it's not real. A colleague of mine calls this the CSI effect, criminal um, attorneys, uh, criminal prosecutors have this problem with DNA evidence, is that if you can't present you know, the, the DNA evidence that links the defendant to the crime, juries are apt to say, oh, well, there's no really good evidence. It's like all the other sources of evidence we have no longer apply. Um, and as I said, the thing you worry most about is um, bad precedent, like the Amex decision, um, and you're operating in this environment in which I would say the Chicago School of Economic, and I call it theory as fact, um, it could be that vertical mergers are beneficial, therefore they are, based on what, um, still reigns in the judiciary. Okay, so um, what, do, what, do, what are my recommendations? First, we need to increase resources. So this is, the, this is the number of mergers, an index that's set equal to one in 1985, what's happened uh, up through 2017. This is the uh, antitrust division budget. It's gone up a little bit, but, you know, come on. <laughs> you, want, you want challenges? And this is just mergers, right? When you've got a merger wave and you're on a clock where you have to decide within 30 days whether you're clearing this merger or going to a second request in six months to a year, whether you're going to challenge the merger and then litigate it. Um, The notion that you have a lot of excess resources to spend on conduct, anti-competitive conduct, is um, heroic. Um, Secondly, and this is where academics could help a lot, I think we need to change the priors on mergers. We need new analyses, particularly empirical ones that establish facts. So what's the motivation for mergers? Are they really motivated by um, uh, terrific efficiencies, or are they motivated um, by CEOs wanting to run bigger empires? And so if we say no, you know, in the first case, we're giving up something. In the second case, maybe we're saving shareholders. In fact, I was proud that when we blocked the Electrolux GE Appliance Division merger, GE appliance sold itself for more money to a less um, competitively problematic firm. So we benefited consumers and GE shareholders. Um, So we need to understand this. There's an old corporate finance literature, but it needs to be updated and reinvigorated. We need to understand what those facts are. Um, Our merger efficiencies realized. There's a lot of suggestive evidence that says companies, CEOs promise the moon and deliver, um, you know, some. Charles River pebbles. Um, understanding that would help. Um, and then what are the consequences um, of, of mergers? We could do the same kind of light with respect to divestitures and remedies. Um, you know, do they work? Do they not? Uh, vertical mergers, as I said, weren't challenged. They were typically settled by, by agreements, thou shalt not do A. Because A is anti-competitive. right? So the Comcast NBC Universal, which was like the AT&T merger clone but from a few years earlier, had 150 different restrictions on behavior. But you know, if you have the incentive created by a merger to act anti-competitively and you have smart lawyers, they can say, okay, you're not allowed to do A, but A-prime, that's not in the agreements. That's not in any one of the 150 agreements. Go, go hog wild on A-prime. And, and Antitrust enforcers aren't regulators, so they're not well set up to say, well, well hold on, we're going to investigate whether A-prime and A are the same, and if they are, then you can't do A-prime either. Right? So I think there are probably lessons to be learned there. Third, I think we need to change the burdens in court. This is going to require probably legislation, um, but we need to rebalance the threshold for proof. We've gone from what was called Bonds Grocery, where two firms that would have had 7.5% of the supermarket share in the LA area, that merger was blocked, right? There's like, that merger wouldn't even get a, an, an open uh, preliminary investigation today, um, to now companies proposing mergers to Monopoly and thinking they're gonna get them through. So we, we, we need to sort of um, rebalance this, to reemphasize what are called structural presumptions. So. If a merger is a, uh, uh, in an already concentrated industry, it's presumed illegal. The companies would have the burden of having to show that it would it would be beneficial. Um, and we probably need to shift the standard for efficiencies. Courts have not yet accepted efficiencies as a defense to an otherwise illegal merger. That is an anti-competitive merger. But a lot of the lower courts are dancing around this. And I do worry all it's going to take is... Some case going to the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh is on the uh, has a dissent in the Anthem Signa um, appeal that sure suggests he's very um, amenable to efficiencies arguments, um, and and those are so speculative. Generally speaking, I think there should be a pretty high bar for saying if this merger is going to raise prices, we're going to rely on the parties saying it will be efficient to offset it. Um, and then finally there are a whole set of questions that I haven't even begun to talk about but where right now it's really really hard to envision bringing, successfully bringing a merger challenge um, in these areas uh, maybe a little less so in these two you could imagine it but there haven't, haven't been many um, and where I think um, we've, probably, we've probably let anti-competitive mergers go because economists have not been imaginative enough in understanding how the harm would be manifest, sort of across these various categories. All right, so with that, thank you very much. Um, I'll stick around for a little bit if any of you want to stick around and ask questions, and otherwise, um, thanks for being a great audience.